Welcome to Lost in the Movies. This episode will be covering Spirited Away, the Hayao Miyazaki animated fantasy film from the year 2000, in honor of Miyazaki's 80th birthday, which he celebrated last week. So I thought this would be a good time to bring this uh, podcast episode out. It was originally recorded for patrons a few years ago. Throughout this year, 2021, I'll be sharing reviews that uh, were continuing to come from the, the Patreon archive as I did throughout 2020, but I'm not going to have a thematic thread this time. In 2020, I did an Ethan Hawke series where I reviewed several films from his filmography from July through December, and the only exception to that was my every three months Twin Peaks Cinema and Left of the Movies series. I'll be continuing those this year. Uh, this month, there'll be a Twin Peaks Cinema episode. In a couple months, there'll be a Left of the Movies, until in the fall, I spin those off into their own uh, individual podcast feeds. Uh, for now, I'll be doing two episodes a month, one uh, just a random film that I want to discuss, uh, again, taking from those those reviews that I recorded before. And then the other one will be either a, a bonus random review or it will be Twin Peaks Cinema or Left of the Movies. Uh, next month, I'm going to do a teaser for my Patreon series, Lost in Twin Peaks, which is an episode guide to the show. But other than that, uh, the random posts will be other films. So to start with, for Spirited Away, uh, this is a film that is probably one of the most popular of the 21st century, just barely making the cut. Uh, in terms of, I mean, you know, acclaim and uh, the enjoyment of the people who've seen it. I'm sure there are many films that more people have seen, although this was a pretty big hit as well. I discussed the details in my review and uh, share some of my previous thoughts on it from when I had reviewed it even earlier. But before we get to that, I just want to let people know what's going on on my site, on my Patreon. Uh, publicly, I've just shared a visual tribute called A Tale of Two Expectations. It is screenshots from two adaptations of the film, uh, great Expectations, by you know, based on the Charles Dickens book, one from 1946, directed by David Lean, and the other directed by Alfonso Cuarón from the 90s, which is a modern update of it, uh, taking place in New York and starring Ethan Hawke, which makes a nice capper to our six months of Ethan Hawke podcasts uh, last year. So check that out if you haven't had enough Hawke yet, or you just like Great Expectations. Uh, it was fun to pull up images that could be kind of juxtaposed in that way. It's all just like screenshots, but organized so that it, it alternates between the two films uh, completely. So there's an equal amount from both from both movies and the, the, the moments of like Miss Havisham or the, the convict popping up or uh, Pip or Finn in the Ethan Hawke version going off to the city and uh, just kind of looking at those two different aesthetics and textures. It was really um, fun to put together that way. Another visual post that I put up is Images from Journey Through Twin Peaks, Part 5, one of two. This is, as it says, the first of two posts. The other probably go up in February, where I am sharing uh, images from my video essay where I superimposed or I uh, juxtaposed or manipulated images in some way. Basically, all the times I did that throughout the video uh, to the underlying material. In this case, a lot of David Lynch films, his work with the editor Mary Sweeney, and also... Uh, some images of the lead up to Twin Peaks and its influence on other shows. So sort of hard to explain if you just scroll through it. Of course, this is all linked in the show notes. You can see for yourself and uh, uh, will hopefully get people excited for when all of these videos are uh, complete for this part, which is uh, 
a long two and a half hour section of my ongoing video series I began in 2014. In this case, documenting the other work of Lynch and Frost and how it all leads up to uh, season three. So this has been a long work in progress and this is just kind of the visual uh, accompaniment to these videos that I'm still working on. And then for Patreon, for $5 a month patrons, uh, for Lost in Twin Peaks, I covered both episodes 22 and 23, the Diane Keaton one and then the uh, drawer pull one. You know what that means if you've seen the show. For my monthly patron episode for the dollar a month patrons, I uh, covered Twin Peaks cinema subject of Rashomon, the Akira Kurosawa film, so another Japanese movie to discuss this month, where uh, I look at how that film juggles the different points of view about a murder and a rape that was committed in the woods and how this relates to Twin Peaks, which it does in many different ways. For Twin Peaks reflections on that podcast, I covered the characters of Leland, Albert, and Donna, the locations of the Twin Peaks and Deer Meadow Sheriff stations, and the storyline of the one-armed man and how it relates to season three, part 17. So that's what I've been up to. It's been a month off. So this is a little longer section than usual for the updates. Plus I want to just let people know what was in store for this upcoming year now let's get on with Spirited Away. This week's film in focus, Spirited Away, was suggested by Sean. Walt Disney Studios presents a Studio Ghibli film. Honey, don't take a shortcut. You always get us lost. From master filmmaker Hayao Miyazaki. What is it? Come on, let's go in. I want to see what's on the other side. Where are you going? You shouldn't be here. Get out of here now. What? You've got to get across the river. Go, I'll distract them. This film begins in the present day in the modern world, or at least the modern world of the early 2000s. Uh, there's even a reference to the 90s economic crash when a family comes across an abandoned theme park. And a family in this film is a mother and a father and their daughter. And interestingly, as is often the case with these I th stories, I think, she's an only child. Uh, um, she's, you know, their 10-year-old daughter, Chihiro. And... Uh, they're moving to a new home, and she's, of course, very forlorn. And yes, I think a little bit whiny, a little bit sullen, although there are some criticisms of people saying that, but we'll get to that in a moment. Um, but I'll stand by it. You know, we're all a little whiny and sullen sometimes. And uh, when they go down this dirt path that's supposed to lead to their new home, they get kind of detoured in the woods they walk through a big tunnel, they find the hill, they find that theme park, the parents start pigging out on this concession stand, which is really funny and random. Like, 
do they not wonder why nobody's there and how there's a bunch of food if nobody's like working there but they just seem to kind of roll with it and then they become literal pigs as the sun sets and uh, Chihiro runs through the town and all of these spirits are emerging and she ends up uh, at a bathhouse due to her protector who um somebody she kind of remembers from the past in a way and they reveal the reason for that at the end of the film but he's a spirit who works for Yubaba the owner of this massive bathhouse which is like a resort for spirits Spirited Away came out in 2001 I think in Japan and I believe 2002 in America um it was kind of not supposed to happen in a way uh, Princess Mononoke was going to be Miyazaki's last film I don't know if he announced that publicly or just among like colleagues and friends or something, but soon afterwards he began to work on a different project. And famously, this film was inspired by his friend's 10-year-old daughter who saw similarly to uh, Chihiro. And it's interesting because I've read different takes on the film where people defend Chihiro in the beginning where people say that she's kind of bratty or spoiled and they say, well, she's moving to a new town. Um, you know, people are being kind of judgmental of her. And that's that's true to an extent, but it's worth noting Miyazaki is kind of judgmental as well in the uh, documentary making of that I watched on this, on the beautiful-looking Blu-ray. He says something to the effect of this friend's daughter was a uh, a selfish brat or something like that. But uh, he said, all of my favorite kids are, are, are that way. And uh, you can tell they have the inner strength that, that Chihiro has. And the film is about drawing that out. I think a lot of times with these sort of coming-of-age films, the child is taught a lesson like, be ashamed of this way of behaving, and now you should act this way. And in her case, it's just more fear, I think. Uh, she has this understandable fear of ending up in this spirit world and literally just knowing nothing about how to deal with it. And she slowly overcomes that. I think what I like about this method of storytelling is the development of the character feels natural like they're responding to the situations they're helped a lot by others this isn't one of those stories where like the superhero child does everything on their own and kind of tells children you can do anything you want if you just put your mind to it it's it's not exactly saying that she's more responsive to the environment she receives a lot of help from other people but she also i think her number one virtue that gets her through all of these challenges is just like a natural willingness to observe other people and to see them and listen to them. I think that's that's something sort of notable about even where she starts, especially now, the idea that they're always on their phone or they're always distracted. But she's very observant from the very beginning. She notices the little statues to the side. She She almost sees too much, and that's a little bit of why she's sad you know she's going to this new environment so what changes for her is the comfort within the environment and the, the willingness to kind of go forward with it like the whole last part of the film is her journeying off on her own away from the resort with her new friends who are all her enemies not long ago which is an interesting thing in and of itself she takes this little train into a marsh area and finds ubaba's sister and i I found that compelling because I had a dream a few years ago where it was like I got off a train in some sort of abandoned depot somewhere. And, you know, I think a lot of people have had dreams like that. And uh, it just this film really taps into that that kind of quality of like travel and wa wandering, I think, is the word I'm looking for, because it's not like looking for a destination so much as 
finding yourself in new places and kind of dealing with that and going to the next place without really having a sense of direction. And that, interestingly enough, that's how he told the story as well, because this was written without a script. And I don't, I, I'd love to read like a full on making of like the documentary. It's like an old uh, Japanese TV special on the Blu-rays is pretty cool, but I'd love to read an even more in-depth thing about the storytelling because this was more about the animation and a lot about the recording and the music and things like that but not quite so much about the development of the narrative and it's just you can tell that it's a wandering narrative in a way because very random things happen at times it's almost a little frustrating if you're looking too hard for that through line like well wait why is this thing happening now wait suddenly they can do this and what but you have to kind of embrace that and he actually says at one point in this interview there's a scene where they're crossing a bridge and he's, she's told you have to hold your breath. If you, if you, you know, breathe, the spirits will see you. And it's exactly that sort of arbitrary spur of the moment rulemaking that kids do all the time. Like I remember I always have, and I admit I still have a little bit of this compulsion. It's like if you're walking on a sidewalk or something, like your foot has to be on the crack when a car passes you or something. Like there's no reason for that, but you just sort of fixate on these little things. And so it's sort of delightful the way that it's able to make these rules up as it goes along. And one thing I loved about this film at the time, I first saw it 10 years ago, and this is the first time I've seen it since then. It's actually one of the earliest films that I reviewed for my site, and I'll link that review below. But one thing I really liked about it years ago when I saw it was this idea that it's really focused on the sort of behind-the-scenes grunt work of a fantasy world. Like, usually you don't see that. You know, the whole point of Disney World is you walk through this magical land and everybody's there to kind of entertain you and you're the guest. Be Our Guest is like the Disney theme song. Granted, the servants in that char- in that movie have character, but more in relation to the heroine. In this, it's the it's all of these service workers who are the subject of the story and we're really with them. And I like that a lot. Like it's kind of, it's almost like a class consciousness in fantasy land, you know. The attitude of the film towards work is interesting as well. Like if you put aside the fact that she's basically a, a child labor, I mean, she is a child laborer and seems sort of like a child slave almost because she can't, she's not supposed to leave. They're going to kill her if she doesn't work. And, um, you know, that don't think she gets paid except by the, I guess the customers tip them and all with the gold if they're not eating them. But uh, the film has this, when you put that aside, positive attitude towards work. Like she learns new things by doing her job. She's taken care of by her supervisor, who's sort of tough, but, but um, compassionate. And I just, I really like the world that this film creates that has one foot in this realistic worldview and another in just the most wild, spectacular flights of fancy. Like there's just so many creatures and spirits and figures just dotting the frame in this, walking through the background. I think my favorite are the giant peeps. They look like those peep candies, um, these yellow birds. Literally every time they came on the frame, no matter what else was happening, I laughed out loud. Like, it's just an instantaneous reaction. And this film has a lot of that. So there isn't so much like a boom, 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 clear storyline development. There's an overarching problem that remains for the whole film, which is her parents are pigs, and she's afraid they'll be slaughtered and eaten, which is pretty gruesome. But she has to work at the bathhouse to keep herself alive because the owner can't kill anybody. If anybody asks for a job, they have to give them a job. That's that's like some vow they made. We never learn why. It's just one of those things that's thrown out there. <laughs> it's a convenient explanation, sort of whimsically. Each problem that the characters face stands on its own. Uh, there is a running thread of this no-face monster 
the spirit who Chihiro lets into the bathhouse because she feels sorry for it stuck out in the rain. And uh, then it starts talking and eating everything in sight. And then it starts chasing all of the characters and vomiting everywhere. Like this is definitely a gross streak to the film, like vomiting and stinking. There's a big stink monster that comes in, just sludge, sludgy, muddy. Everybody's running and holding their nose and Chihiro has to clean it. And she discovers it's actually a river god covered in muck. She pulls out a bicycle and all these other things. And that was something Miyazaki came out with because he and his friends cleaned a river and they found a bicycle buried in the mud bank and they had to wrap a rope around it and pull it out. So he takes these little real life things and he inserts it in this fantasy environment. But he does it almost, it's interesting, like he doesn't do it as a way to gloss over the reality of it. It just puts it in this heightened sort of fantastical uh, presentation, but it still carries that weight of reality. The film has a real generosity toward all the characters. Like No Face, for example, is not simply some malevolent force. It's actually infected by the environment. Ch Chihiro says, I think being in the bathhouse makes him crazy. And uh, when he joins them on their little sojourn to uh, meet the sister of the owner of the bathhouse, he's suddenly much more peaceful and calm and you feel kind of sorry for him. It's just, it's a very like cute film, but not in like a sticky sweet kind of way, in a really genuine way. And that's true of so much Miyazaki. My Neighbor Totoro is a great example of that. I remember being fascinated with that particular film as a kid, because it would always be in the, um, those little pamphlets and like, you know, the, the booklets, I guess, in like Disney um, videos or things like that. You know, they, they would always have an advertisement from My Neighbor Totoro. And I thought, what is this? Like, it's just the creatures were intriguing. and um, But I never saw it until I was an adult. So it's just kind of a shame. So I guess the closing message of this is, if you have kids, if, you, if you're listening to this and you have kids, you've probably already shown them Miyazaki. But definitely show them Miyazaki. I think it's something every kid deserves to see. And, you know, every adult as well. And that's it for my thoughts for now on Spirited Away. But if you have anything to say, please send uh, your reflections my way, either through comments on the podcast, on my site, lostinthemovies.com, which I forgot to list at the beginning of the podcast. But of course, as I said, the links for those posts I mentioned are in the show notes. You can also reach me on Twitter at Lost in the Movies or at Journey Peaks. And uh, I would love to hear from people on this film because it's really it, it really strikes a chord with uh, viewers in a way that I think a lot of more relatively recent, you know, I realized 20 years ago is actually pretty long ago, but for a 21st century film, I think it, it resonates with a lot of people in a way that usually more classic films do. So it'd be interesting to discuss in that sense. If you enjoy this work, please rate, review, or subscribe on uh, Apple Podcasts. That's the number one way that you can promote my work, share it with others. Of course, it's on other platforms as well. And uh, if you really like my work, consider becoming a patron. For a dollar a month on patreon.com, you get a monthly chock full uh, episode, bonus episode with usually a Twin Peaks cinema comparison of the show and uh, a film somewhere and then some other subjects as well. This month, I'm hoping to catch up with listener feedback, film capsules I've been watching, political reflections, podcast recommendations. So there's all kinds of goodies there. Hours and hours and hours, hundreds and hundreds of hours of content that uh, is not public at this point. So check it out. For $5 a month, you can follow the Lost in Twin Peaks podcast where I'm doing an episode rewatch 
of the show in great, great detail, much longer than these short episodes. Although I, I like this short format as well. Both have their virtues. Here's a preview of what's upcoming in two weeks. Here is a Twin Peaks cinema subject that uh, I, I had to give its own podcast, basically. So some of the other episode directors, uh, their films have interesting little tangential connections to Twin Peaks, and I kind of package them together in October. I'll do another one in a few months, too. But this is a film by Tim Hunter that is deeply tied to Twin Peaks to the point where I thought this needs a whole episode to itself. So here's a sneak peek of that. See if you can either recognize it from the clip. Uh, and if not, uh, just wait. You'll find out what it is in a couple weeks. Did they do it out of friendship? You don't give a damn. I don't give a damn. Nobody in this classroom gives a damn that she's dead. Or did they do it just for fun? You're going to bring her back? It's done. A murder, a cover-up, and then a betrayal. You have seen her face, Clarissa. You keep seeing her face. 